Aloha kako, and welcome to another episode of Native Stories. Ova o nene alo inoa, with me, nene alo. This episode is a part of our treaty series, and we will be covering on Norfolk Island and Norfolk Islanders. The Cabinera Treaty, what was the understanding that islanders had when they left um, Pitcairn Island and settled on Norfolk Island, and how has it affected the land and people today? So today we have Pauline Reynolds, who is a Norfolk Islander of Pitcairn, Tahitian at, with Tahitian and English descent. She's a historian whose recent PhD is by creative practice using interdisciplinary methods and the study of tapa from museums around the world to retell the story of her people. She is deeply concerned by the way the history of her people has been told until now and is working to provide a counter-narrative that centers her Tupuna Vihine and the Polynesian women from Tahiti, Huihine, and Tupu Ai, who have settled on Pitcairn in 1790 with the Bounty Mutineers. Pauline has lived in the Pacific most of her life, Australia, Norfolk Island, Tahiti, and Huahine. And we have Anita French, who won't be speaking on this podcast, but she has been working with Pauline on it. Anita French is a seventh-generation native Norfolk Islander, descendant of Tava Ura from Tahiti and Matthew Quintal Mutnir, who has lived most of her life on the island, which is located between Aotearoa and New Caledonia. She feels a deep sense of responsibility to carry forward her heritage and ensure the dignity of her ancestors and that they retain its place on Norfolk Island in the face of continued change and modernization. She works directly with Norfolk Island Council of Elders to strengthen and promote identity and culture for the benefit of future generations. So welcome. Hi, Nanea. Uh, let me start by thanking you for having me on your amazing platform. What a fabulous space for Pacific Islanders to share their experiences. I listen to every episode that you and Vahia record, so thank you for um, including Norfolk Island. Uh, the words I'm sharing with you today were developed by myself and Anita French in her role with the Council of Elders of Norfolk Island. So I wish to acknowledge her and she is here with us in spirit. So to start off, um, who are the Norfolk Islanders and how did they come to be on Norfolk Island? Uh, Norfolk Islanders have a rich and vast heritage. A lot of the world knows the story about the mutiny on the bounty, yet there's so much more to our history. Uh, what's important to know here is that in 1790, the British ship Bounty arrived at Pitcairn Island and old oral histories tell us that before Bounty's arrival, Pitcairn was called Hitia Reva by Tahitians and from those oral histories we know that there was a settlement on the island and people voyaged back and forth to Tahiti. So when Bounty arrived in 1790, there were still remnants of that old Polynesian Hitia Reva settlement. Uh, there were 28 people aboard Bounty when it arrived at Pitcairn, uh, 12 women from the islands of Tahiti, Huahine, Tupu'e, uh, six men from Tahiti, Raiatea and Tupu'e, and a baby girl, and nine British mutineers. 
The first generation was quickly born, but only six of the women and six of the British men ended up having children. By 1856, the population numbered 193 people and none of the original bounty settlers were still living by then. But if we go backwards to 1831, the whole population, which included some of the original Vahini uh, settlers, moved back to Tahiti, um, but it was unsuccessful primarily because they had no immunity to disease. Um, there was a really high death toll among the Pitcairn community, so um, they all um, made the return voyage back to Pitcairn. Because of that, the idea of another migration was painful and frightening. However, offices of offers of new places to settle were continuously made. The British consul in Honolulu uh, proposed that some of the Pitcairn families might settle in Kauai. The Ari'i Vahine of Huahine proposed a large tract of land to the descendants of Tofaiti, who was one of the bounty women. Uh, but these offers were only for a couple of families and the islanders couldn't just wouldn't separate from each other. Other offers came from a group of islands off the coast of Chile and the Hawaiian Ali'i uh, offered to transport the whole population and house them on his estates in Hawaii. But the Pitcairn Islanders wanted to remain together and if they had to move, that it be en masse to somewhere where they would not need to assimilate with another community basically because what had happened on Tahiti and then uh, basically catching diseases. So um, finally, Sunday Island in the Kermadic group was offered, as was Norfolk Island. And um, so Norfolk is on the very western periphery of Polynesia. Like Pitcairn, it had already been settled by Pacific Islanders in the past, but they'd moved on by the time um, Cook sighted and claimed the island in 1774. From 1788, the British used Norfolk Island as a penal settlement up until 1814 and then um, they reopened it again in 1825 until it was closed for good in 1855. Um, with that closure, Norfolk was perfect for the Pitcairn Islanders. It's um, bigger than Pitcairn and was uninhabited once the convicts were removed and there were already buildings and livestock. So eventually the islanders, both women and men, voted to move to Norfolk Island. And it's important to know that the Pitcairners had a cultural heritage which they brought with them, and this heritage came from their Polynesian mothers and British fathers. They had their own language. They had particular ways of cooking. Women had equal say to men. Um, and many other things to do with the land, the ocean and the sky and day-to-day -day living, basically. Um, importantly, they also had their own constitution. It was adopted in 1838 after the islanders drove off a tyrannical Englishman uh, who, who installed himself on the island and another incident after an American whaling ship visited and the sailors caused terrible havoc um, and claimed that the island had no protection or laws. So this constitution was drawn up by an English captain who visited um, with consultation with all of the islanders to suit their particular needs. 
And this also came to be regarded by many as the moment the island came to um, became a British crown colony. The constitution provided regulations for elections for a chief magistrate, two councillors and a set of ten regulations that reflected the particular requirements of island life. And these laws embodied the equality and fairness of the people, including women's suffrage, and were carried with them to Norfolk Island. The islanders accepted the Crown's offer of Norfolk Island on the understanding that they would be free to live as they did on Pitcairn and divide the land as they wished. On arrival at Norfolk, they were presented with a document that basically outlined the island was placed in their possession, including all stores, livestock and houses from the convict era. An imperial order and council decreed that Norfolk Island be separated from the colony of Van Diemen's Land, which is today known as Tasmania, Australia, um, because the penal settlement was previously administered from there. Um, Norfolk was then officially made a distinct settlement expressly for the Pitcairn Islanders. However, uh, the Governor-General of New South Wales, William Dennison, who was overseeing the whole transaction, changed his tune. Uh, and you can imagine how devastating this must have been for the Pitcairn Islanders. They'd left their home with everything they owned because they were given assurances that they could continue to live as they always had and that Norfolk Island was theirs to manage as they wished. <clears throat> Only weeks after they arrived, a letter was uh, read to them that claimed that the island was not completely theirs to manage, effectively reneging the offer that they were given um, on Pitcairn um, before they travelled to Norfolk. In 1859, so three years after they arrived, Denison travelled back to Norfolk or travelled to Norfolk for the first time and confiscated the document that placed Norfolk Island in the Pitcairn, Pitcairner's possession. Apparently, uh, one of the things that Denison uh, abhorred was that the islanders had equal suffrage, which, was all, which has always been, you know, a very big feature of our culture. Sadly, the restrictions placed on the Pitcanners was too much for some families, so that 16 people returned to Pitcan in 1859 and another 26 in 1863, which is why today you have Pitcan Islanders and Norfolk Islanders, although we have the same heritage. So we span, you know, the western and the eastern periphery of Polynesia. Uh, 30 years later, in 1896, the Governor of New South Wales lobbied to remove the islanders' self-government altogether. And there's a few important points to make. For example, the Crown's instructions for Norfolk Island were that it was a British possession and four separate orders in council are specific about governance arrangements on behalf of the Crown, but these did not annex or cede Norfolk Island to another jurisdiction from the Crown. Um, so anyway, now we move into the 20th century. Uh, to explain what is known as the Canberra Treaty, we have to go back to 1945 when 51 countries came together and formed the United Nations and committed to international peace and security and the development of friendly relations among nations by promoting social progress, better living standards and human rights. 
At that time, almost one-third of the world's population was living in non-self-governing territories dependent on colonial powers. From the UN Charter principles, equal rights and self-determination of peoples, as well as specific chapters devoted to the interests of dependent peoples, the UN, the UN prioritised decolonisation efforts to bind administering powers and implore them to recognise the interests of dependent territories and agree to promote social, economic, political and educational progress and to respect the culture of the peoples concerned, assist them to, and importantly, to assist them to develop appropriate forms of self-government. Administering powers are obliged under the Charter to transmit information to the UN on conditions in the self, non-self-governing territories while the UN monitors progress towards those territories' uh, self-determination. So consistent with the UN's global movement for the progress of humanity in 1947, the participating governments of Australia, France, Great Britain, the Netherlands, New Zealand and the United States of America signed an agreement <clears throat> named the Canberra Treaty. The treaty established the South Pacific Commission, which is now known as the Secretariat of the Pacific Community, which we'll call um, <clears throat> SPC or uh, the Commission. The areas served by the SPC included all dependent territories of the six founding mem member countries. For Australia, they declared non-self-governing Pacific territories, um, which were uh, Papua, New Guinea, Nauru and Norfolk Island. Under the rules of the treaty, the participating governments received one vote for itself and one for each dependency. So Australia was afforded five votes in the Commission, which gave it the highest number of votes and the capacity to counter the influence of France, who held four votes. So the role of the Commission is described in the founding treaty as desiring to encourage and strengthen international cooperation in promoting the economic and social welfare and advancement of the people of the non-self-governing territories in the South Pacific region. The SPC and Canberra Treaty were the mechanism for the participating governments to cooperate and collectively advance their UN obligations of decolonisation of Pacific Island territories. Um, so in 1960, the UN further strengthened the international mandate for decolonisation by adopting the Declaration on the Granting of Independence to Colonial Countries and Peoples known also as the Declaration on Decolonisation. By this resolution, the General Assembly proclaimed the necessity of bringing colonialism in all its forms and manifestations to an end. After the UN uh, Declaration on Decolonisation in 1965, the Canberra Treaty was amended and required each participating government to transfer one of its votes to each territory which ceased to be under colonial administration. Then that territory's government, 
um, would be admitted into the Commission as a participating government with its own voice and its own vote. Again in 1970, with the Declaration on Principles of International Law Concerning Friendly Relations and Cooperation Among States in Accordance with the Charter of the United Nations, the commitment to end decolonisation by UN member states states, was mandated under international law to honour equal rights and self-determination. But unbelievably, despite the international mandates and obligations on the UN member states and despite the mechanism established under the Canberra Treaty to advance uh, human rights in the Pacific, Australia denied Norfolk Island's participation in any capacity in the SPC forum, despite the island being within the territorial scope of the Commission and despite Australia exercising its right of vote through the inclusion of Norfolk Island. Um, In the 1965 changes to the treaty, um, well, it allowed territories to become full members in their own right, and this status was extended to our cousins on Pitcairn Island by Great Britain, but was denied to Norfolk Island by Australia. However, in 1979, Norfolk Island was finally allowed a limited a form of self-government under the rules of the Canberra Treaty, which entitled um, and was entitled to join the Commission and represent itself. But unbelievably, Australia moved a motion to remove Norfolk Island from the territorial um, scope of the SPC. Oh, unlike Nauru in 1968, and Papua New Guinea in 1975, who were granted their independence from Australia, Norfolk Island has never been supported to achieve self-determination. The first significant consequence of this is that Norfolk Islanders haven't been provided their rights under international law to the mandated processes of decolonisation and self-determination. Decisions that impact our people, our heritage, our land, our environment and the management of our natural resources have been made primarily by Australia. The problem is that Australia's interests and values are often very different to those of of the native Norfolk Island community. Exclusion from social, economic and political development with territories under the Canberra Treaty and through the SPC has also denied Norfolk Island opportunities for development and and advancement in areas of common interests and challenges. But on the other hand, Australia has, as a participating government, benefited from asserting authority in the Pacific space on the back of its responsibility to Norfolk Island. Um, Through a cultural lens, Norfolk Islanders have been alienated from participating in their own regional development. Uh, Through a human rights lens, they've also been denied their rights of self-determination. Because Norfolk Islanders' governance arrangements are held within the 19th century Orders in Council of Queen Victoria, they require an imperial act to lawfully dispossess um, the island from its status as a British colony. 
this intended protection from annexation and assimilation has left carriage for the extension of human rights mandates in Norfolk Island at the discretion of Australia um, as the Crown-appointed colonial administration. The island's uh, governance arrangements are perhaps fortuitously still under the imperial framework. Um, all this being said, Norfolk Islanders are fiercely proud in their Pacific, of their Pacific ancestry and culture. Um, however, because we've been denied standing among our Pacific cousins, as well as representation by the colonial administration, Norfolk's position is weakened because many of those Pacific nations do not know us as well as they should um, or could. Island families have endured criticism, intolerance and racial prejudice. The intergenerational trauma caused by these injustices has seen some of our people depart this life heartbroken um, because the continuation, the continual uh, misrepresentation of Norfolk Islanders, uh, their history, achievements and culture is ongoing. Norfolk Islanders um, do have a very special relationship with their island. Uh, they carefully manage their natural resources to contain the demands on the land, especially those, um, especially since the overthrow of the island's government in 2015. Australia has opened immigration from Australia and incentivised rapid development of the land and economy. Um, and this means that native islanders are becoming displaced by external um, policies. Notwithstanding this sad and difficult past, Norfolk Islanders know who they are and what they're fighting for. They're pushing to preserve their cultural identity and realise their human rights so that future generations can live free of the burden of colonisation with dignity. For everyone listening, stay tuned for the next episode on Native Stories for our treaty series. And if you enjoyed this episode of Native Stories, please consider leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. Reviews help us to get new listeners, grow the show, and helps us to keep putting out new content that you enjoy. You can follow us on Facebook, search Native Stories, or on Instagram, just search Our Native Stories. And you can also follow Pauline and Anita on Twitter, and we will be adding their information in the show notes. Mahalo Nui for tuning in, and we look forward to seeing you next time. Aguiho.